My heart stopped for a minute on Thursday when I looked down at my computer screen and saw that Julie Andrews was trending on Twitter. You all know who Julie Andrews is, right? <laughs> so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, adieu. She is my world. I am obsessed with Julie Andrews. I have been ever since I was a little boy. So this week, as you all know, right, the world lost Norm Macdonald and Jane Powell, and we all know that celebrity deaths come in three. I see that she's trending. Any celebrity of Julie Andrews' age, when she starts trending on Twitter, my heart stops. It turns out the actual headline was far less dramatic. Julie Andrews is okay, everybody, just to be clear. Uh, yes, a round of applause for Julie Andrews. Let's, let's try to keep her alive as long as we can. I don't know about you, like, I need Julie in my life right now like I never have before. So I was, once, I, was in, I was at a book signing she did in New Jersey once. Just being in her physical presence is like nothing I have experienced. It was a tonic. She's amazing. So this headline that was trending on Twitter was that there's these two <laughs> YouTube gamers named Quackity and Sapnap. Quackity and Sapnap. Quackity and Sapnap did not know who Julie Andrews was, and that was suddenly the big headline of the day. So I had to look up Quackity and Sapnap. Maybe you would have too. I found, I went down this whole YouTube rabbit hole of uh, these guys basically do videos of themselves playing Minecraft. Um, and they have, between the two of them, like six million followers on YouTube. There are tons of people who are watching these guys play games on YouTube. They didn't know who Julie Andrews was. Um, then there's an appeal there, I, I guess. Uh, so I'm learning all about this, right? Like having my mind kind of blown by, oh my gosh, this is the world we live in. We're like, two people know who Julie, Julie Andrews is and millions of people are watching Minecraft. And suddenly I just felt so very, very old. <laughs> like very old and very out of touch. And I gotta be honest with you, like, I mean, you know, funny little thing, I learned who sap, nap and quick, what are, what are, whatever. Um, I've had a hard time letting this one go. It's kind of thrown me through a loop. And I understand to a certain degree, it's like, you know, my heart stopped, I love Julie Andrews. Um, but there's these guys out there who don't know who she is, and at one level, it's like, well, who really cares? But at another level, it's like, I've been thinking about these, these, you know, these people in our world, this generation of leaders coming up behind me who could care less about all of the stuff that I love. Broadway musicals of the 1930s and so on, and podcasts and biblical interpretations. It's like I could see my whole world, everything I care about and have devoted my life to, being like dismissed with the wave of a hand. They don't know who she is, and they don't care. And I haven't quite been able to move on from that one yet. Maybe it's because I'm getting ready to turn 40, I don't know, but I feel so curmudgeonly and out of touch, like, Grandpa, let's get you to bed, and I just want an Academy Award for Mary Poppins, and it's time for your nap. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly, so I'm working on that. And because this is not about Julie Andrews, right? You all are smart enough to know. This isn't about Julie Andrews. This is about relevance and power and who gets to decide what matters and what we pay attention to and what we don't. The disciples are arguing all about this stuff in the story we heard from Mark's gospel, right? No surprise, these guys do this all the time. Jesus has just told them that he's not going to be around for forever, and their first response is to, like, start staging the succession plan, right? Who's going to be in charge of the movement once the leader isn't around anymore? That's actually one way to read the whole story of Christianity down through the ages. Men, and it's mostly men, let's call a spade a spade, it's mostly men jostling for power and authority. That is the story of the church. Sometimes they kill one another over it. 
Shanna's got me listening to this, this podcast that Christianity Today is putting out about the, uh, the Seattle former megachurch pastor Mark Driscoll and his spectacular fall from grace at a church called Mars Hill, which is up in Seattle, one of the big evangelical outfits in the Northwest. So if you think that this like conflicts and disputes among you thing is all in the past, I encourage you to go find, I think it's called The Life and Death of Mars Hill on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a listen, uh, especially if you spent any time at all in an evangelical church over the last 50 years. Power games are endemic to what we do, right? And not just in churches, you all know this. Jostling for power is what makes this world turn. So when Jesus needs to shock his followers out of their power games and their status jostling, he takes a child from the corner of the room and sets it in their midst. And that language that Mark uses is really deliberate. Setting a child or standing a child, raising a child, we might say, in, and putting it in the center of the room, that's all about upsetting the power balance in the room, right? It radically shifts the conversation. This is a highly structured society. It's a very hierarchical society. Men are at the top. Women and slaves are at the bottom. So just putting a child who in the first century world is basically a slave, right? Actually, one of the words that we can, we can use for child can be translated either as child or as slave. They're almost interchangeable concepts in the first century mind. Raising a child, the lowest one in the room, to the level of the guys, literally the eye level of the guys who are the most powerful ones in the room. This is not a cute sermon illustration. Right? This is not Jesus' version of kids say the darndest things. Children did not represent cuteness in the ancient world. They were not praised for their curiosity or their intelligence, their innocence. They were at best assets, free labor, and at worst they were liabilities. They died an awful lot of the time. They had no status, they had no standing, they were property. So when Jesus raises a child to the eye level of the disciples, he is completely upsetting the apple cart of this room. And then he goes them one better. He says, not only must you be willing to receive one such as this child in your midst, at the same time, he says, there, you, there not only must there be room at the table for this child, but those of you who think you wield the power have to be willing to go and sit where that child was sitting. You have to be ready to move to the place of service. It's a total power shift. Whoever wants to be first, he says, must be last of all, servant of all. He's talking about the place that child was inhabiting. Whoever welcomes one such of these in my name, he says, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. That's a funny word, welcome. We throw it around a lot in church, radical welcome, the welcome that we offer every Sunday. Welcome sounds like, you know, throwing open the doors wide and inviting everybody inside, you know, being the one who makes sure that everybody has what they need in order to fully participate in what's going on. But in Greek, welcome, or actually receive, is really a, a more literal way of, of translating this word. Uh, Jesus says, whoever receives such a one as this receives not me, but one who sent me. To receive, which we translate welcome here, it's a verb that always takes the middle voice in Greek. You're going to have to bear with me. After the 8 o'clock service, a woman came up to me and said, you got a little dense when you started talking about the middle voice. So buckle your seatbelts, hang in there, you're smart people. I really think, I think you can understand this, but it's a little, we don't do the middle voice in English, so this is like a weird linguistic thing. And I try not to do this in sermons because nobody wants to have Greek explained to them from the pulpit. But this is actually really, maybe this is a Julie Andrews thing and I'm the only one who cares about it. But I think this is, I think this is fascinating. It's a little technical. So it's not so much, it's not just welcome the child, right? The grammatical form that this verb takes 
means that because it's in the middle voice, it's meant to be understood as a verb that operates two ways. It both operates on its object, right, the child, the one who is being welcomed, but because it's in the middle voice, it is heard to operate on the subject as well. It has to implicate the one who is performing the verb. Does that make sense? The classic definition of how the middle voice works in Greek is it's when a subject is himself affected by the action of the verb he is performing. When the verb, the thing I'm doing, transforms and reshapes me even as I am acting it out. Transformation is the key here. Everybody in this room is changed by the kind of welcome or receiving that Jesus is talking about. This is about power dynamics, right? If I'm going to receive somebody in Jesus' name, I have to be ready to let that one act something on me, not just the other way around. See, I think what really terrifies some of us, and I'll include myself in this, right? I think what terrifies some of us about this world that we're seeing, you know, the calls for justice, the calls for a reshaping of society, I think what terrifies some of us is that even, you know, when we're kind of on board with some of it, underneath it is this lingering fear. The kids are taking over the table. And some of those kids neither know nor care who Julie Andrews is. <laughs> it's like the things that I hold dear, the traditions and practices that have shaped me and hundreds of other people like me, if I want to follow my rabbi, if I'm going to follow where Jesus is inviting me to go, I might have to be, I might be asked to let some of that stuff go and to begin to glory in my own growing irrelevance. I gotta tell you, I don't know what that looks like. I, I'm so used to, I'm so used to being the kid. <laughs> I'm so used to being the one who's like, you know, pushes his way or is brought into the conversation. I'm used to being the one with the snarky retort in the corner, the one who gets invited to the adult's table from the kid's table and is not sure that he belongs or even wants to be there. And then at a certain point, you find yourself like seated at the table in the room where it happens, the place where the decisions get made. And I think that's where, at least in my case, I start deluding myself into thinking that I deserve that place or that position or that power because somehow I earned it. I fought to get there. I put up with a bunch of crap in order to get there. And maybe some of that's true. But then somebody else comes along and they don't care who Julie Andrews is and they don't care who Nathan LaRue is. And the stuff that I've given my life to, right, the one I'm invited to receive, I think that's the one who could care less about the Episcopal Church and preserving this particular institution with its processions and hymns and candles and vestments, right? Somebody who cares less and knows nothing about the middle voice in Greek. And God is up to something really interesting in all of that. Because I discover that my job is never about controlling the seating chart, deciding who's in and who's out and who belongs and who doesn't and who gets to decide this stuff, who has to put up with the decision. Instead, the invitation is to learn how to receive what somebody very different from me, somebody who threatens my sense of identity, to receive what that one is offering me. Maybe somebody who's more into Minecraft than into Mary Poppins. To receive that one in the name of the one who sent them. I'm not just the agent of inclusion, right? I am asked to be its recipient as well, which is that it's never a one-way street, right? Those with power 
somehow you know, deigning to make room for the ones without power, but basically just co-opting them into the same table, right? Usually that's how inclusion works, right? Where I'm in charge of a table and I feel bad about it, so I get a bunch of other people to come sit at my table, but I expect them to behave in the way I want them to behave and to ask the questions that I want to ask and to have the conversation at my table on my terms. That's usually what inclusion looks like. Jesus is talking about something completely different because he's using this weird middle voice that is available to him as a Greek speaker. And that word asks me not just to think about whom I'm welcoming, but how that very act of learning how to welcome is going to transform me. Like how it's going to change my sense of myself and what matters to me. How that act of welcoming might completely shift the conversation in an instant. Jesus is inviting those of us who already have seats at the table to learn how to use our power as a means of our own transformation by being willing to hold that power lightly enough so that we can shift with a certain degree of grace into a very different role than the one we have been taught to play. He's inviting us to step aside and maybe glory in our irrelevancy. The ones who are not controlling the agenda the ones who are listening more than they're speaking, who are ready to embark on some kind of maybe profoundly painful learning adventure that's going to ask us to change in some pretty fundamental ways. He says, that's, that's how you do this. The one who wants to be first in my kingdom, he says, has to discover what it, what it feels like to be last, what it feels like to be in the corner, what it feels like to be overlooked and marginalized and forgotten, what it feels like to be obsessing about somebody that everybody else could care less about how to then receive another, let that one change me, let that one's agenda work on me, so that I set aside my agenda and learn how to claim somebody else's agenda as my own. That's actually how this thing is meant to work, as far as Jesus is concerned. That's actually where, if you like, a gospel version of diversity, equity, and inclusion comes from. That is the project that we're invited to take, to take up, not just making more space at the table, moving aside so that somebody else can sit down, and then just maintaining the same table norms that we've been maintaining for generations. I think what we're asked to do is to transform the table itself so the power starts to look a little bit less like the room where it happens, and the tables around which we gather start to look more and more like that table. A table of plenty, a table of bread, a table where everybody gets fed, a table that is set by Christ himself in the kingdom of God.